Food and Faith podcast would like to thank our sponsor, Memphis Theological Seminary. Memphis Theological Seminary is currently accepting applications to join the next cohort of the Doctor of Ministry in Land, Food, and Faith Formation. This dynamic and innovative low-residency program is open to students who are passionate about the intersections of ministry with agricultural practices, food justice, care for the land, and the role of faith communities in both rural and urban settings. Students in this program explore the theological and ethical dimensions of land and its use, the role of food in our lives, and the ways faith communities both shape and are shaped by their relationship with land and food. This program will provide theological resources and practical models for the practice of ministry in faith communities, which seek to relate more intentionally to the care of land, food, and all living creatures. The first one-week residency for the new cohort takes place in June 2022, and applications are currently being accepted until April 30th. For more information and to apply, visit memphisseminary.edu. Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chamberlain. Welcome back, Food and Faith Podcast community. This is Derek Weston, and in today's interview, as a part of our continuing Just Kitchen series, Anna and I are joined by Hugh Hollowell. Hugh and I have been friends for about 10 years now, and as you'll hear, he's a man with a genuine heart and a natural storyteller. Hugh Hollowell is a writer and pastor who lives in Jackson, Mississippi. He blogs most days at humidityandhope.com, where he writes about his attempts to find a good life in the Deep South. You can find links to all of his various projects at hughhollowell.org. Before we jump into the show, I need to do something that's a little uncomfortable for me. Many of you know that I received a generous grant from the Louisville Institute last year, allowing me to study all things food and faith. That grant allowed me to put a lot of time into this podcast. Well, the grant is coming to an end, and I would love to be able to put as much time into the show as I have in the past year. And you can help me do that by contributing to the show at www.patreon.com slash food and faith podcast. And when I say that any amount helps, I mean it. Any amount helps. Okay, enough of that. Let's jump into our conversation with you. All right, everyone, welcome back. We are here with Hugh Hollowell. Hugh, thanks for being with us today. Glad to be here. So we always start off our podcast conversations about asking our guests about their geography, the places, the people, the food, the music, the culture that shaped you. And in this conversation, we'd love to also invite you to dig a little deeper if you want to think about the geography of the kitchen that formed you, as this is part of our our Just Kitchen um, series. So tell us about your geography. So I grew up in the hills of North Mississippi. And uh, if you look at a map, the easternmost boundary, I'm sorry, the westernmost boundary of the Appalachian Regional Commission is Marshall County, Mississippi. And the easternmost boundary of the Mississippi Delta is in Tate County, Mississippi. And I grew up in Marshall County, half a mile from the Tate County line. So I literally grew up at the intersection of Appalachia and the Mississippi Delta. And, and both of those tremendously influenced who I am and, and how we ate. My mama uh, was not a natural cook. Her, her, she was the oldest child of um, a man who was 
my grandfather was in the was in the Navy as a career. They moved around a lot. And uh, my grandmother was sickly. So my mom was the woman of the house. So she she cooked for expediency and calories. Taste was always a far secondary consideration. Yeah. Um, the uh, however, uh, I grew up on 40 acres that had been in our family for about 100 years. It had originally been 150 acres and it got sold off over the years in crisis sized increments. Sometimes we had a three acre crisis and sometimes we had a 12 acre crisis, but there was always land to sell off to to stem the, the flow of the blood. And uh, and so uh, when I was just after I was born, my mom and dad sold three acres to a retired farm couple that uh, built a, a small house on their three acres next to us. And she was uh, your, your typical farm wife. Uh, they were in their 70s at that point. She made biscuits every day of her life. <laughs> they woke up at 4 a.m. They went to bed at dark. Um, they made coffee in, a, they boil water in a pot and put a handful of coffee grounds in it um, and stirred it up and then strained it through a piece of cheesecloth, right? She, she had incredibly simple food. I think her, her entire spice cabinet might have consisted of cinnamon, sugar, salt, pepper, and maybe some vanilla extract. And that was it. Um, but made uh, desserts and cakes. And I, I don't think she owned a cookbook. Um, but growing up, she was my surrogate grandmother uh, because they lived next door, right? My parents were we were struggling and so my parents worked a lot. So I grew up in her kitchen. One of my earliest memories is standing on my tiptoes with my hands up on the on the countertop, like like Kilroy, right? And and my nose over the top of the counter, watching her roll out biscuits. And she cut them out. And the phone rang. And and her phone was on a table in the back of the house. So she went back to answer the phone and I ate my weight in biscuit dough. <laughs> um, and then just stood there like like no one's going to notice this, right? <laughs> that like half the biscuit dough is now missing. I became convinced early in life that food is love. Uh, people who didn't have the tools to love me any other way. Um could work hard and make simple, nutritious, filling food that that not only like took care of your body, but took care of your soul too. Uh, but um, I grew up uh, a mile away from a church that my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, had been the head of the building committee for 75 years before. And uh, we, every fifth Sunday, we had potluck. Uh, dinner on the ground. And uh, it was a small church. I mean, I bet on Easter, um, if it was Easter Sunday and we were having a meal, there might have been 40 people, right? It was tiny. And you knew everybody had a specialty, right? So um, Miss Bessie would always make the caramel cake. Miss Van Hook always made chicken and dumplings. And you did not want to try to bring some 
strange chicken and dumplings in if Ms. Van Hook was going to be there that Sunday because no one was <laughs> going to eat your food. And so, uh, you know, and these were people who didn't have much, you know, and, and none of it was fancy. Like, I remember I was in New York in my late 20s and uh, I had a, I'm going to screw up the pronunciation, but it was a fruit tart of some sort. It was a goette. Go anyway. That's right. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, and and I remember thinking that um, you know, Miss Sullivan, this was her fruit tart, but we didn't call it a galette. It was just a fruit tart. Um, I don't know that she knew it was called a galette, right? It was just um, it was what it was simple food. Uh later I learned about like bistro cooking in France and and uh you know like the food that working people eat. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's what I grew up on. Uh, none of it was fancy. The first time I ever ate fried polenta, I paid $20 for a plate of fried polenta in the late nineties with, um, a marinara sauce. And I remember thinking that I just paid $20 for some fried grits and spaghetti sauce. And I, I felt scandalized. Fair. <laughs> I had no idea what polenta was, but it sounded fancy in the menu. That's kind of my people. We we grew up, you know, and and they didn't have. I don't want to diminish them because they they were doing the best they could, but there weren't a lot of emotional tools at their disposal. Um, but this is what they could do, you know. To to this day when I'm down and, and feeling, uh, you know, uh, in my feels, I love nothing more than, so the lady next door used to make, she called it steak and gravy. And really all it was, was basically a uh, round steak breaded in flour and browned. And then she'd make a thick brown roux, a uh, uh, brown gravy and, um, and put it, all in a casserole, put a lid on it, 300 degrees until it surrendered. I mean, it, it might be in there two hours, right? But when you were done, it would just fall apart. Like you pick it up with a fork and it would just fall apart. And you serve that over mashed potatoes with some English peas on the side and uh, and a biscuit. And like, that's my idea of, like, I, I, I can't be in a bad mood when I'm eating that. Uh, and, and she's been gone 30 years now, mm. uh, and I can still smell the kitchen and, uh, and hear the sound. She had a little, a radio on her counter, uh, that she listened to the news, um, uh, on, uh, it had the old dial, right. With the pull-up antenna, but she, she, it was low enough that you couldn't really make it out, but loud enough there was background noise and uh yeah that's that's where i grew up yeah there's a, there's a lot there and i think you know when when we think about good food you know i think there is this because we we now have a celebrity chef culture in our world that there's this idea that good foods are complicated that good foods are complex and require all sorts of crazy ingredients but good food can be 
really simple. Um, if it's made well, if it's made with love, if it's made by someone who knows what the heck they're doing in the kitchen, things don't have to be complex to be good. So I'm I'm really interested in you know there's a lot of, lot of things that come out of out of your your geography, but I'm really interested in how did uh, how how did those influences shape the way that you cook shape what you cook shape how you cook shape your 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 feelings about cooking um and was cooking was when when did when did cooking become uh i know you you know your way around the kitchen when did that start for you well i think of cooking in a couple of different contexts right because on one level uh cooking it you know, the ability to, to make something beyond a can of Chef Boyardee ravioli is just self-care, right? Like, I mean, you know, like being able to shower yourself is self-care, being able to dress yourself is self-care, and being able to, to like, produce nourishment that your body can eat is self-care. Uh, so on one level, so on that level, um, my, my father, my grandfather, my father's father died when my father was seven. He was only child and they lived on a farm. And so my father at seven years old was the man of the farm. Right. And, uh, and dad was terrified. I'm the oldest. And dad was terrified that something was going to happen to him and that I would have to be put in that situation. And so at five, six years old, I was in there knee- up to my arms, like kneading biscuit dough and uh, learning how to scramble eggs. And uh, he told me one time that if you know how to make an omelet, you never have to go hungry. <laughs> so, on, but there was no joy in it. It was utilitarian, right? Uh, until uh, I was in my mid twenties and I was going through a divorce uh, and I'm alone in the house, in my apartment, in my tiny little bachelor apartment. Um, and I'm leaning against the counter eating Taco Bell. And I thought, this is just depressing as hell. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love a good bean burrito. There, there goes our sponsorship with Taco Bell. Right. No, I'm sorry. We lost the Taco Bell account. Right. But the, um, I mean, I love a good bean burrito, but like, you know, there was just no, there was no care for me mm-hmm. in it. Right. And when I remember the times that, uh, so Monty was the lady next door. So when I remember the times that like Monty would make biscuits, you know, or, or the, the steak and gravy or beef stew, or, or she made jelly. She had plum trees out by her fence and we would gather the plums and, and she would put up 20 or 30 jars of plum jelly for, for the year. And, uh, and like, she didn't do that because it was her hobby. Right. I mean, they have money. They could have went to the store, but she did that. That was an act of love for for the people she cared about, for her family. That was how she showed love for her family. And so it occurred to me that I should treat myself like family. Mm. Right. Like if I love myself, like what would it mean to love myself? It would mean to treat myself like I'm a family. Right. And and so and if I did have a family at that point, I would have done whatever I could to take care of them. And so uh, so I started I set the table um, all by myself. Right. I set the table. I would cook not every time, but often um, and uh, and formalize it. Right. And and so and it became a, a creative act. 
Uh, I came to see it not just as like, this is how we put calories in our body, but this is how we show love for ourselves and for the people we care about. I am I am not a fancy cook, although I mean, like I can make fancy things, but I don't get any more joy out of them. Um, you know, I, I detest snobbery. Um, maybe that's just growing up where I did and being the child of working class parents, but uh, who often got was on the butt end of snobbery. But uh, I just think there's really two kinds of food. There's good food and bad food. I ain't gonna lie. I do love some Chef Boyardee raviolis. Um, <laughs> so like maybe we can go after the Chef Boyardee account. But I do, I do, I do love some Chef Boyardee raviolis. Um, but uh, you know, but I also like biscuits, and I also like a frittata. Um, you know, and you change the ingredients a little bit, and now it's a uh, tortilla de papas, uh, and you. Uh, you know, and you put the ingredients on after the egg is made, and now you have an omelet. Um, and so I, I love all of that because it's an act of care, uh, and and it's a creative act, right? So it, it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties, so twenty years ago, uh, that um, twenty five years ago, and um, but it was as an adult that I, I came to see that. It really is about taking care of myself and, and, you know, and the other thing is that a lot of us who are in helping professions, right, um, you wake up in the morning and you go to work and Jim, your client is addicted to drugs. And when you go home at five, Jim, your client is addicted to drugs. And like, it's easy to feel like not much happened that day. Like nothing, like you did a whole lot, but like you didn't move anything forward. Right. <laughs> um, and so uh, for 13 years, I was, I did frontline homeless work, uh, working at the intersection, like homelessness and addiction and hunger. And, and every day was like that, you know, every day just felt like, uh, I, I'm really tired and I did a lot of things, but I don't have anything to show for it. And you can come home and have uh, a, a grocery sack full of disparate ingredients. Uh, and with 30 minutes, you can produce something that feeds your family and shows them you love them uh, and that they enjoy. And it's an opportunity for you to come together and and like you brought order to chaos. So if you did nothing else that day, you made this beautiful thing that gave pleasure to people. There's so many pieces that I want to pull out. I just want to go back to this idea of the difference between cooking as fuel and cooking as an act of love. And I think you use the words of act of, of care, care, be it self-care, care for mm -hmm. our family. And one of the the concepts we're wrestling with in this book project is the idea of how justice comes into it. How, how do we how do we have a just kitchen? I mean, that's our our working title. I just want to like pull a little harder on that thread and thinking about how to be able to keep showing up to our work. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, if it's if it's with the you know the client who will be addicted at nine a.m. and addicted at five a.m. but I mean five p.m. but you still keep showing up um how is that 
act of care also an act of resistance and justice and that that to me does not disconnected from the ability to keep going back out into the world or to keep caring for oneself and one's family was it audrey ward that yes. said that self-care was a radical act uh i think that's right sounds so. like something audrey lord would say yeah <laughs> we could yeah. get back checked it but check it but <laughs> seems on, brand. on that right um the <laughs> after we get the chef boyer d account you know we'll <laughs> i am a very pragmatic person like in terms of uh almost everything I, I i've always done street level work i've never been a policy guy right like and um because i there's a lot policy wise i can't solve but if maria is hungry i can take care of that right um and so um but i also recognize that you know we use terms when I say we, I mean like collective we. Um, you know, when we say things like, I, I think sometimes we don't really listen to what we say because, or we don't think about the implications of what we say because, like, we talk about so and so is like on the margins or near the margins. Uh, I actually find margin to be a, a really helpful term because if you have, say, Lydia who works at Dollar Tree and she's making $7.50 an hour. Right. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of margin in her life uh, between her and disaster. Right. Uh, one bad day, um, you know, one one day sick might mean might mean the difference between she can pay her light bill or rent or not. And so if if Lydia can eat better food, can eat nourishing food, if she can uh you know if if she knew that making a stir fry even with frozen vegetables you get at dollar tree is both faster and more nourishing and makes less mess than some of the other options that she does know how to do well and that gives her more energy it gives her more time it gives her creative authority over her life it gives her agency right and so what we've done is we've then worked to create more margin in her life, maybe not economic margin, but, you know, one of the things that the powers that be do is they keep us tired. They want us exhausted because exhausted people don't fight back. And so if Lydia could learn how to get more nourishment, more rest, um, if she could even get, if she could get a half an hour more of sleep or even just rest in her day, it would free up margin for her to change things that she doesn't have now. And so I think things like cooking and the ability to take care of yourself, um, you know, not to mention that like cooking is always at least a third cheap or, or two thirds cheaper than eating out, like just that's how they price things is three times the food cost. And so you can just assume that whatever you're going to make at home is a third the cost of whatever you're going to eat in the restaurant. And so it creates economic margin as well. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, is uh, 
a civil rights activist, was a civil rights activist from Mississippi, huge influence and hero of mine. And she famously said that if you have 400 quarts of okra put up in your pantry, can't nobody tell you what to do. <laughs> um, you know, because then you have agency over yourself and you're not dependent on on other people making choices for you. Um, so, yeah, so I think I think the idea of food and food sovereignty and food choice and and food agency is not at all separated from making really good spaghetti and meatballs uh, for your family on, on Friday night. I think those are intricately connected. I love that. Uh, so much of what you just said just resonates incredibly strongly with me. And Heber Brown, who's been on our show several times, uh, will uh, actually just posted something about Fannie Lou Hamer the other day. Um, and she's having a moment right she's, now. She, she is. She is having a it's moment. A good with, moment. With, yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Those, those of us who are 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 interested in food and food justice. Um, so, my, minor uh, plug: my friend Jasmine Morell just wrote for the Bitter Southerner a interview with Fannie Lou Hamer's, I believe, granddaughter mm. Um, mm. Uh, about uh, a lot of these intersecting issues. It's in the current issue of the Bitter Southerner. Nice. Uh, and J Jasmine's a woman of color in Asheville. Um, Excellent. We'll yeah. we'll see if we can find that and put a link in to the show yeah. notes. So that that care that uh, you learned how to show for yourself in the kitchen. Um, at what points did that become? Uh, you know, you have the experience of people showing care for you as you're growing up. You then in this, this period in your mid twenties, learn how to show care for yourself. When does that then transition to food being a way of you showing care and nurture for others in your life, whether that be um, family, friends, or whether that's folks that you were serving in your work in, in North Carolina or in your work now, um, what did that movement look like for you? So it became um, my wife, Renee, and I have been married. Thir this is our 13th year. And um, I, I joked that, but it's it's founded in truth that the first year we were married, I needed to hide her birthday present. And we lived in this tiny little apartment. So I put it in the oven because I knew she would never go there. Um, it became really <laughs> obvious. <laughs> That's a true story. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Um, it became really obvious early on that if there was to be cooking to be had in our house, it was going to be up to me to do it. And Renee did not grow up. Her mom, uh, they had five children and they were economically tight. And her mom had no energy for creativity. She tended to open cans and heat them up. And I knew uh, this was going to be a different kind of relationship when our first Valentine's day, uh, I didn't have much money, but, uh, I was going to make brunch for us. And so French toast and, uh, the good thick bacon and French toast. And I had splurged. I mean, at the time I was making no money, but I splurged and bought real maple syrup, uh, you know, which like a thimble of it's like $20. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's really expensive. And, um, and so, uh, 
Renee, I made I made it all and I had the powdered sugar, right? And I like tapped the little sieve so it like went over the top. It was uh I'm normally not a big presentation person, but I put a lot of care and effort into this. And and uh Renee Renard remarked she had never had real maple syrup before and she she put it over her uh, uh french toast and she took a bite and she asked if we had any log cabin because the the maple <laughs> syrup wasn't mapley enough um right so i knew then right. that like i was gonna take the lead uh in our in our in our house with the cooking um but you know it really came home to me uh in 2007, I was in North Carolina, and I had just gotten there, and uh, I saw, I was doing uh, some some work, uh, working with people who were experiencing homelessness. The faith, and most of the people who were there at the time were faith communities who, um, I don't want to call anybody out, but they were the kind of people who make you you have to listen to the sermon before you can eat, right? Okay. And let's just be clear, the people preaching those sermons, that's not Harry Emerson Fosdick, right? Like, I mean, um, these are not wonderful sermons. These are like, you're going to burn in hell forever sermon. And you feel like you're kind of already there because you're hungry. <laughs> and you just want this thing to be over with. Um, and And so, and that just offended me. I mean, it offended me as a preacher, but also it offended me uh, as someone who loves people and loves food, right? And and who uh, it just seemed contrary to everything, to everything that like I knew about food and about love and about God and about Jesus and about uh, how we build community. And so, uh, so the next Saturday. Uh, that was on a, on a Sunday. The following Saturday, uh, I went to the I went uh, the day before I went to the grocery store and I bought flour and Crisco and milk and sausage. And I made 24 sausage and biscuits and wrapped them up in wax paper and I took them downtown to the park. And they said, well, when when does the preaching start? And I said, I don't know anything about preaching. I've just got some food. And um, and we all sat on a wall there in the park and we ate and they said, this is nice. And I said, well, I'll be back next week. And uh, and I was. And by the third week, there was a line of folks waiting for me to show up. Uh, and then people came up and said, hey, I want to help you with your ministry. And I said, well, I'm, I'm just got some biscuits. And they're like, we'll bring more. And uh, within probably six months, we had four different churches that were working with us and uh and i and i as often happens for me i don't i i my twitter bio for a really long time said i don't have a plan um <laughs> and often i don't right like i mean what i have found has been consistently true in my life is that i end up wading into a thing and then i have to find meaning in what happened right like i don't go into it with, you know, uh, I can't think of the guy right now, the one who wrote uh, Torture is Eucharist. Um, anyway, one of the liberation theologians. Like, I, I read all of that after 
I started doing this, right? Like I, di I didn't have an academic knowledge that I then sought to put practice around it. Uh, I had a practice praxis and then had to put intellectual underpinnings uh, under it, yeah. largely, honestly, for people in the church, because, uh, you know, like, apparently the fact that Jesus fed 5,000 people and, and, and like people like that story so much, they like all the gospels included it. Like one of them, I think put it in twice. Like it was like, we have this blank spot here. What should we put in? And they're like, Hey, put in that story about the fish and the bread that kills. Like, I mean, <laughs> it was like the greatest hits. Um, and so, uh, so it wasn't enough for them that, that, Jesus believed in feeding people without preconditions. And, and, but if you could say, well, you know, as Leonardo Boff said in his book, uh, you know, they're like, oh, wow. Uh, uh, it, it, it was frustrating. So anyway, um, so, but I, I, I did come to see that and not to sound like a preacher for a minute, but, you know, in, in Matthew 25, the famous sheeps and goats thing, right? If we take that seriously, if if Jesus said that when you when I was hungry and you fed me, the logical implication of that is that when we feed people, we are literally having an encounter with Christ. Right. Literally. And not just when it's, you know, um, the 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 Eucharist. Uh, in a formal setting, but uh, a sausage and biscuit share with love um, is an act of worship. Like you're, it, it transforms uh, this dirty piece of sidewalk into a temple where you get to encounter Christ. Um, and and not only encounter Christ, you get to, you're like making a sacrifice, right? Like, like in the, in the, in the liturgical sense of the word. So I think that properly understood sharing food with people, uh, with people you love, but even people you don't love, right? Like I would argue that's even harder. Um, because I mean, even white supremacists and Nazis feed their children. Um, there's no credit, <laughs> To that um but when we when we share food uh with no expectations like we are encountering god it's an act of worship you know the other thing that i love about sharing food with people is it just makes it opens up such unlikely relationships if you think about most of us so who gets to sit at our table, right? Like Derek, I've eaten your food before, right? So I'm a friend. I get to eat at your table, right? Um, and Anna, if you ever come to Jackson, Mississippi, I look forward to feeding you. Um, and vice and, versa. But we tend to homogenize our tables, right? Like the people at our table tend to be people like us. And, and, and the... Uh, but in the part that day with those 24 sausage and biscuits, like there were people who were experiencing homelessness and there were people who were just dirty 
you know, and people I didn't know their story and people who were wandering by. And there was one police officer. Uh, he got two. We pointed that out to him. Um, the <laughs> uh, You're getting a little greedy, man. Um, the, <laughs> uh, you know, but it it opens up room for unlikely relationships. Uh, and if we think about it in terms of like Eucharist and and communion and church you know and if the act of communion in a church is to symbolize um not to get into like sacraments versus ordinances but but if it is a a miniature uh of in some way a microcosm of a meal this idea of this banquet that we're laying for people from all different walks of life people who normally would not sit at the same table together Sarah Miles in, in one of her books said that it's not real communion unless there's someone scandalous at the table. Um, if we if we use the the uh, the Last Supper as the model. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, the for a lot of Christians, especially our evangelical siblings, the Easter story is like their foundational story in their in their faith and but for me it's not it for i mean like i'm fine whatever right like the uh but the i mean I, i'm not again it as my people say but, um, <laughs> but for me like what fascinates me is the last supper you know like on a night when he knew he was going to be arrested like word is out on the street that they're after him. And like later that night, he would be so afraid that giant drops are running down his forehead. And so what does he do on that night? He has dinner with his friends. Like how awesome is that? Because like often when you're afraid, nothing is better than being with your friends. I love that. And then, and they didn't just like, hang out and play Minecraft together. They ate together. <laughs> Even though one of them had already dropped a dime. Even though he knew that they were all going to scatter before morning. Like, he still, it was worth it to him to have dinner with his friends on this night when everything was going to hell, literally. Yeah. I, I love that story. Yeah. Sorry, I got into preacher mode. <laughs> And now it's time to pass the plate. Um, excellent, excellent. Um, Patreon.com, um, uh, which you you can find you there as well. Um, you know, and I, I appreciate that so much because I I think we have we have so much richness in the gospels that we spiritualize. And instead of actually looking at the very human interactions that are happening, the very, the very um, earthly, the very flesh and blood things that are happening around hunger and food and fear and, and, and fellowship and, and things of that nature. And I, I appreciate one of your great gifts, Hugh, is that you are, are really good at dealing with the real. And I appreciate that about you. Um, 
But I want to I want to go back to your kitchen for just a second. Sure. Uh, you are you're working on a you uh, said you're in the early stages. You told us you're in the early stages of a project, um, a cooking project about meals that are important to you and that have have deep connection for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that that project? Sort of what the genesis of it was, and uh, what are you kind of hoping to do with this with this? Uh, you kind of described it as like a narrative cookbook. Yeah. So in last, so I don't know if you know this, but there's this pandemic going on. <laughs> so I've heard. Right. Exactly. <laughs> what? And, right. Exactly. It's on the internet, Anna. Look it up. Like it's out there. <laughs> I look it up. Yeah. Google is your friend. Um. And so, and so, um, the uh, and last summer I was, uh, so I live with depression. Um. And uh, last summer I was in a really bad place. Uh, I was kind of, um, it was bad. And uh, I know me. And when I am like that, I, I kind of need a, I need a thing, right? Something to focus on. Uh, and so I started a blog, just like it's 2003, um, you know, uh, and uh, couldn't remember my type pad um, uh, password. So I started a new blog. Um, and, uh, it's at humidity and hope.com. Um, and because I live in Jackson, Mississippi and, um, and down here we have lots of humidity, but you have to find the hope on your own. And so, um, and I just started writing, uh, I had all these stories I wanted to tell and it's a mixed bag. I, I don't have a plan. And so, uh, I would just tell the stories that I wanted to tell. And early on, it, it came out that a lot of these stories involve food. Um, and uh, what my first, the first one I did, uh, I told a story about cooking pinto beans. Um, and I basically, it's probably about 1,500 words of walking you through how to cook pinto beans. And it was it blew me away the response people like oh my gosh like you need to write a cookbook like i would totally buy a cookbook if it was written like this um and so i'm like yeah whatever you're just being nice um and so then i told a cornbread story that almost broke the internet um people have strong feelings about cornbread um, <laughs> yes they do <laughs> yeah exactly yellow versus white sugar versus not and we don't speak of jiffy corn mix just fyi like i'm i mean it's fine i mean if you like cake but let's not confuse it with food and so um <laughs> the um so anyway so people have strong opinions uh and 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 like and what I, I saw is, is like, again, this is 2022. Who comments on blogs anymore? Nobody, incidentally, spoiler. However, if you write about food, people always chime in with stories of their food, right? <laughs> like, this is how my mom made cornbread. Or my mom always put sugar in her cornbread, and you're wrong, Hugh. Um, I mean, people have, like, very strong opinions, right? But... All of them, none of it, very little of it was, I prefer the richness of yellow cornmeal. Rather, they all have memories and stories, right? Um, I'm fond of saying that normal is just like whatever you grew up with, 
right? Like, uh, I grew up in uh, butt deep in biscuit culture, right? Like, I, I come from a long line of people who take pride in their biscuits. And uh, to me, like, uh, you know, those biscuits that come in the can that explode and scare you, right? Like, I, I never ate those growing up. Um, but I understand that some people did. And for them, that's, you know, their grandma made those with love for them. And, and when they ate them, they felt safe. Um, and, and so I don't want to take that away from them. You know, like, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to eat it, but like, I'm glad they are. Uh, and I'm glad that it, it, it's meaningful to them. And, and so, uh, so I just loved seeing how people, were responding and how they were connecting um it uh it's not my serious writing but it, I, but it's actual writing that's like touching people and engaging people and and at the end of the day man like we live in this dystopian hellscape right now and if we can find any joy at all like i'm in favor of it right like i'm i'm pro joy at this point and and so uh, so yeah, so anyway, uh, I sat down one day, I've written probably five or six posts about different kinds of food. And I just sat down one day and I realized I have about 50 stories like this that involve food that is meaningful to me that, uh, I had that brought me joy that, that, uh, or connection um, and, uh, you know, and none of it's fancy, right? Uh, biscuits aren't fancy food. Cornbread has like four ingredients. Um, the, uh, it doesn't, it's not about fancy. It's about the amount of care and intentionality that's put into it. And so anyway, so I started, um, so I'm going to have about 50 chapters and each chapter is a different food. Um, and it's, a narrative, right? Uh, and then at the end, because uh, people are people, I'm going to put like a little traditional recipe of it. Um, but uh, so that when it's open on your kitchen counter, like, you know, you don't have to scroll through 1500 words of text to find out how much butter is supposed to go in this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm not a, Renee is a baker. Like she enjoys I should, I mean, like for her, like she'll make four cakes a year, but they'll be pristine. Right. And, uh, I'll cook every night and rarely open a cookbook. Um, but she's a chemist in the sense of like, you know, baking is chemistry and cooking is like art, you know, or craft. And so, uh, the, um, so anyway, uh, so this, none of this is super precise, you know, it's like, hmm quarter cup of cheese, half a cup of cheese if it's payday. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, if you're if you're concerned about calories and stay using half and half here, you could use skim milk, but I, I will pray for you. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out a title. I'm playing with titles a lot. I've got, um, we're going to uh, publish it in-house, publish independently because... Uh, I do have this team of patrons that support my work and my writing. 
and they've agreed to agreed to fund it and we're gonna put it out into the world and see what happens if you you know uh, publishing is not no the world is not clamoring right now for small authors um the publishing world is not just eager to write us checks uh so if we're going to put meaningful work out into the world we're going to have to find some other way to do it um and so that's what i'm that's what i'm working on i'm really drawn by the idea that the responses that you got to your blog posts being story and memory like that that to me speaks to the power of of food and cooking to to transport us to um to connect us in 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 across time across space like that it, that it wasn't just uh and uh people giving their opinions you know it was it was people probably more people giving their their treaties on, on if i were to ask you if i were to ask you what the best meal you ever had was and then i was to ask you what your favorite meal you ever had was those would be two different meals yeah almost always yep right and if I were to ask you to tell me about a memory of someone from your childhood, almost always food is involved in that memory. It is fascinating to me how often that is true. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, because I really do believe it's not just it's not just a, a trite saying. I do believe that food is the physical manifestation of love. Um, and. And when we are children, when we are vulnerable, when we are young, uh, it is the people who love us that feed us and nurture us and make us feel safe. I want to ask you what brings you hope, um, and, and that could be that could be kitchen related or not. But what what brings you hope that is not a hope that uh, ignores the dystopian hellscape that we're living in, but actually uh, gives you enough fuel to get out of. Uh, get out of bed and face it and to find joy despite it. So in October of 2020, uh, I lost my dad to COVID-19. Uh, dad was a frontline worker um, and and we lost him. And now almost a year and a half later, we've lost almost a million of us here in the U.S., right? And... And of those million, it's not just that we've lost a million people, but each of those people is someone's parent, someone's child, someone's um, co-worker. Uh, they are our server at our favorite restaurant. They are the owner of the dry cleaner that we go to. Um, our lives are connected with them in many myriad ways. And that can be overwhelming if you think about the the sheer magnitude of loss that we're experiencing right now. But I am reminded in these times that uh, there is far more friendship in this world than there is war. There are, while we have lost a million people, there, during all of this time, there are babies being born 
there are uh, houses being bought, there are, uh, you know, uh, children graduating high school, probably didn't look the way they thought it would, but they're graduating high school. And, um, you know, uh, babies are being born, people are, uh, are, are making love, they're, they're planting gardens, they're looking toward the future. Like, we have an opportunity in everything we do. So there's this great story. Sorry, Marky and Sandwich. There's this great story. Uh, Leonard Wolf, Virginia Wolf's husband, tell uh, in his biography of the war years in World War II, told the story about he was in his garden planting iris bulbs. And Hitler came on the radio. It was like the late 30s. And Hitler came on the radio, uh, making one of his speeches. And Virginia Woolf yells at him to come inside because Hitler is on the radio. And, and he said, um, I shan't do it. He said, I'm planting flowers. And they'll be here long after he's gone. Right. And so, like, everything we do is an opportunity to plant flowers. Right. Like, uh, one of my favorite artists said that when you're depressed, you should draw pictures of Batman. Because he said, you'll still be depressed, but you also have a picture of Batman. Um, and. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, I'm depressed, but I make biscuits and now I've got biscuits. Right. right. Um, right. And, and so I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like that's all very woo woo, but it's just this idea that we have a chance every day to create something new. And, you know, my friend David Lamott said that, uh, you know, we talk about uh, saving the world. And he said, and, and I, I think that's naive. He said, but we can definitely change the world. Like we don't have a choice, right? Like our, our presence disrupts the force, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and just our act of being in the world changes the world. And so how intentional are we about that change? Right. Um, and so it does come down to, am I going to plant flowers or am I going to listen to Hitler? Um, and, and which one moves us closer to the world that the better world that we all dream of and, and dream pos and believe to be possible. Um, and sometimes that looks like just making you know, biscuits and gravy for dinner. Um, and, and, you know, so at the end of the day, the opportunity to create a better world than the one we have now in a thousand different ways is what gives me hope. Beautiful. I'm looking at the snow coming down outside my window in Massachusetts and thinking about planting flowers and thinking about the, you know, the war that is, that is um, brewing right, right now in Ukraine and, and thinking about your comment about cooking being an act of love and care. So whether we're planting flowers or 
whipping up some polenta or grits, depending on the <laughs> the context, that somehow those things are connected. Really grateful for this conversation. It's left is a lot of things to think about, but also to, to to feel and to take forward. And really appreciate you sharing your stories and your wisdom with us and with our listeners and future readers. It's been a a rich feast. Oh, thank you, you. Um, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. And Hugh, if people want to connect with you and the work that you're doing, um, how can they find you, find your work, support your work? Yeah. So the easiest way to find me is uh, on the internet. I am blogging daily at humidityandhope.com. Uh, and I have a personal website, hughhollowell.org, and um, with links to all the various projects I'm working on. Great. And one of the things that I will just shout out that Hugh does is he sends a newsletter, and it is a newsletter of beautiful things that he observes in the world. And like, I, I, I just want to personally attest that uh, I have had some dark days where seeing the beauty that you observe has brought me a lot of light. And I'm very grateful for you. And, and, um, you know, I, I think today, I think, you know, as, as we're recording, you know, we're, we're a, just, just to give our listeners context, we're a day uh, into the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And um, there's something that feels very timely about your call for us to seek out joy um, and to seek out beauty and to seek out the good um, and to plant flowers instead of listening to Hitler. Um, something about that feels just remarkably timely and important for us today. So Hugh, thank you. Um, we're going to have to have you on again because like we could, we could talk about, I, I know you're a person who can talk about food forever and I could talk to you forever. Uh, so again, thank you. Thank you for being on and uh, let's, let's make sure we do this again. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the food and faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, the Garden Church and the Keep and Tell. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.